Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 29A, an interview on the affairs of Warren Harding with Jim Robinalt. I'm excited to welcome Jim Robinalt to the show today. Jim is a lawyer and author of several books on American history and the presidency, including The Harding Affair, Love and Espionage During the Great War, which explored President Warren Harding's affair with Carrie Fulton Phillips. And that's what we'll be discussing today. Jim, thank you so much for your time. Kenny, great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, so as far as presidents go, Harding is one of the more obscure ones. And your book came out a few years before Harding's letters to Kerry were published by the Library of Congress. So I'm, I'm curious, where did your interest in Harding and your idea for this book, which draws from those letters so, so well, where did this idea come from? Well, it's a very interesting story because in 2004, uh, John Edwards and Dick Cheney debated in a vice presidential debate. And they did so in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I am. And I asked a local um, historical society, do you have anything to be of interest, you know, on Warren Harding? And the guy said to me, I can't tell you over the phone, you got to come out and see me. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, whoa. Um, so I went out to see the guy. I'm a lawyer. Um, I had written the first book. Um, and so I was interested and I get out there and he pulls out this microfilm. I mean, he takes me in the back room, shuts the door, closes the curtains. I mean, it was really like, you know, hilarious. And he brings out this microfilm and he said, do you know who Carrie Phillips is? I said, I think that's one of Harding's mistresses. And he said, yeah, these are the love letters on this microfilm. And I said, really, how did you get that? They were under seal. Yeah. Um, at, at, there was some lawsuit when they were first discovered and they were put in the Library of Congress. And he said, well, some guy who was involved in all that sent me this. He had made bootleg copies of the <laughs> letters because he was con he was convinced they were going to be destroyed by somebody. Oh. So this was like safekeeping, you know, yeah. and the guy, the guy, you know, we went to the microfilm and the first thing that comes up is a picture of Warren Harding. And, and then the next slide is the back of the picture which is dated Christmas Eve, 1910. And it starts off, my love. Um, and so it's it's a letter he had given to her and inscribed on the back, yeah. you know, and it's a long, passionate, you know, my love for you knows no bounds kind of, kind of writing. And I just thought, wow, this is really something. And it turns out there were 900 pages on this microfilm. So she kept all of these letters from him over time and, uh, that's what I ended up getting and studying and writing about. But it was really kind of this accidental finding of the, the microfilm. Had this guy just been like sitting on these waiting for someone to ask about Warren Harding for like 40 years? Like, Yeah, well, no, this guy knew that they were under seal. So he, the reason he came forward to me is that he knew I was a lawyer and I'd know what to do. Ah, <laughs> And so I called the, you know, I talked to the Harding family. Yeah. And said, could do you mind if I look at these things? Because somebody's going to write about them. Yeah. And so I started and it was a real labor. I mean, the, this was his handwriting. Right. It was not typed. And so I had to get them transcribed. Uh, I had some people help me do that. And then I had to figure out um, what's the backstory behind every one of these letters, because a letter would be dated uh, January 5. Well, was it 1912 or 1918? It makes a big difference. Yeah. And so I had to find out from the internals of the the writing what the date was. And that caused me to learn the whole story about his his time becoming a U.S. senator and then his rise to the presidency. 
And this is against this backdrop of this, you know, world war, this great yeah. war that that shows up. And it turns out I sent out some Freedom of Information Act requests that ask about her and her, her husband. Yeah. And what came back was she was being followed as a German spy during the First World War. And so that just broke the, you know, broke yeah. the whole thing wide open and and made for a fantastic story. Yeah, I, I uh, tried to read some of his letters and I can second that his handwriting was not easy to read. So that must have been quite the project. Yeah, it, it. it was. And he was also, you know, Harding has a ton of myths about him, that he yeah. was stupid, that he had African-American ancestors, right, right. Yeah. all sorts of things about him have been written that are just false. I mean, just false. And one of the things, for example, is that he was not very literate. He read all the time. He was a newspaper editor. Um, he wrote and you know, I had to figure out some of the words that he wrote. Like, for example, the one I loved the best was propinquity. And you will agree with me wow. that propinquity will work wonders. Well, that means just closeness to somebody, but it's a, it's kind of an old fashioned word. And so can you imagine trying to figure out what did he write there? You know, when he wrote, <laughs> right, oh, like, this, yeah, that's it, not a word. Yeah, it was hard. But but once I figured it out, I was like, wow, that's, yeah. in, you know, quite a vocabulary this guy has. So so you transcribed these letters. You added 2,500 footnotes to them. What was right. the biggest whoa moment that hit you in this process? Well, well, the biggest whoa moment in a movie really has to be made about this because the whoa moment was she became a German spy. And she got involved in this spy ring out of New York City that was fabulous. Um, These people um, were very much involved in espionage and, you know, all sorts of things that were happening during the war. And here he was, a United States senator who was in love with her uh, and was, you know, eventually finds out that she's kind of involved in this stuff. So the real wow moment was... When she and her daughter, who was quite beautiful, uh, show up outside of a training camp up in Long Island when they are training people to go to war right yeah. after we get involved in the war. You know, what are these young women from Ohio doing in uh, Long Island, you know, right outside of a camp and going to dances with the officers? Well, they were trying to figure out for the Germans how quickly we were getting mobilized and how quickly we were going to enter the, the war. And in fact, we entered the war you know, we barely got there just in time to turn the tables um, against the Germans. So it was critical stuff in that wow moment of figuring out that this was really something that happened. And she was really a spy and he loved her deeply, but he still voted for war. And she threatened him and said she would expose him. uh, And he still went forward and did what he thought he should do. So it's just this, and it's really an incredible story. Um, it, it, some movie has to be made at some point. It does. This is all crazy. Can you go like a level deeper with this on me too? Like how does one become an Imperial German spy? You know, like yeah. what was the evidence and, and tell yeah. me more about what she was doing for him. Was there anything else besides looking at these camps? Yeah. So, uh, well, it, it starts with the fact that she started this affair with Warren Harding in 1905. So this was no Monica Lewinsky Right. Type he's, of situation. He's nothing at that point. Yeah. This is like a 15 year relationship. This was the love of his life. The woman he married um, was very sick. She had a bad kidney. And yeah. it's clear that they had a pretty sexless marriage, as far as I could tell. Yeah. Um, and it's clear this woman was his outlet because these are very steamy letters. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they are. Very, very graphic. Yeah. Um, but very, but real highfalutin love letters, too. I mean, there some yeah. of them are quite beautiful. He was a good writer. 
And she really brought, brought that out in him. So they started this fair in 1905. By 1910, he had run for governor of uh, Ohio and lost. And she thought he was going to be out of politics and that he was going to divorce his wife and marry her. And he didn't. And that really frosted her. So she yeah. decided she was going to take her daughter and go to Berlin, which she did in September of 1911. So remember, the war breaks out in 1914. Yeah. So she's in this imperial city, Berlin, yeah. uh, living near the, the Berlin Zoo that's very famous. Yeah. And, um, you know, she becomes extremely enamored with Germany, German culture, the Kaiser, yeah. um, you know, the military facets of it and so forth. And she goes there just thinking she'll get away from Marion for a while. And she ends up staying for three years. Wow. So she, by the time she comes back, she comes back like a month before the war is declared, right after the Archduke was assassinated. Yeah. Uh, she comes back. He's running for Senate at that point. He yeah. thought he had lost her. Um, yeah. But she comes back and she's very, very pro-German. And yeah. so that's 1914. We don't jump into the war until 19, the spring of 1917. Right. And during that time, she becomes more and more pro-German, more and more thinking that the British were at fault for the war. By the way, the First World War was very complicated yes. about who was responsible. You know, the, the yeah. British did a blockade of Germany that was illegal yep. under international law. It was a very um, complicated situation. And America had like 20% of its population were Germans, German-Americans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there was a huge split in the U.S. A lot of people supported the Germans yeah. during that war. And um, so she became very, very pro-German. And eventually, you know, once the war breaks out, her daughter gets engaged to a guy who's part of this uh, New York spy family. It's oh. a, ger a German family. They even have a baroness in the family. Um, and Fancy. My so, family doesn't have a baroness. <laughs> yeah. So this baroness gets caught in down in Chattanooga. Yeah. Uh, there was another camp down there where they were, um, you know, training people to go to the war. And she's caught with a guy under her bed who's half her age, who's a lieutenant <laughs> in the army, uh, and has a code yeah. that when he ships out to go to Europe, he will send her this code saying X. And that means I'm leaving from this port or Y means I'm yeah. leaving from that port. Just yeah. clearly spying. Yeah. And yeah. she's, she's arrested, uh, for espionage down in Tennessee and that arrest rings alarm bells up in Marion, Ohio, by the postmaster who reads about it in the newspaper and remembers that uh, Carrie Phillips' daughter, the one I told you about who was quite yeah. beautiful, was engaged to, to this Baroness's, somebody in the Baroness's family. Yeah. And so kind of put two and two together and st they started to, to follow them. And so they were being followed by agents and um, and. They were definitely involved in espionage during this time. And uh, so it just, it was an extremely interesting, fascinating story. Uh, this, you know, great love affair set against a world war and a guy who would become president of the United States. You know, it just doesn't get any better than that.
That that is wild. I also like I, I think of comedies I've seen of like marrying into the mob. I haven't seen marrying into the spy ring yet. Right? <laughs> so, it's a new genre we got to explore. Yeah. Well, the, you know, America had spies. Both the British had spies and the Germans sure. had spies. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the British um, were better at it than the Germans. They were kind of heavy handed and all that stuff. And then you had the Zimmerman. Right. Ta- that's table. a case. Very oh. good example of that. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's so interesting because um, their love affair started way before you know this war was on the horizon or anything like that. So um, it's just they got ended up you know caught in this situation where he had to he had the right to vote for or against war. Yeah, and she began to really push him um, on that front. Now, do we have any sense? You mentioned the government's following her, thinks he's a German spy. Does the government ever come to its senator and say, hey, we think you're having an affair with a German spy? Like, does he ever find out any of this or is it all unknown to him? No. Well, first of all, he had to have had great suspicions because she was very vocal about it being pro-German. Sure. sure. Uh, And um, once we got in the war, he told her, you know, lower your flag essentially and, you know, support, support the American flag. Um, but she kept it up. She was very, uh, strong willed, very strong headed. And so at one point, somebody from the army intelligence unit comes to see him in the Senate office. Can you imagine this scene and says, you know, we know you're having an affair with this woman. And we also believe she's a German spy. Whoa. Uh, and so he writes a letter in response saying, you know, I know she's really pro-German, but, you know, I've, I don't think she is involved in this, mm-hmm. but behind the scenes and some of these letters that I got, these secret letters yeah, that yeah, we're never yeah. supposed to see, this, he writes to both her husband, Jim Phillips, and to Carrie yeah. herself, essentially saying, I'm sure you're not doing this, but whatever you're doing, knock it off because wow. you're about, you're about to be arrested. Yeah. And he was he was quite fearful that she was about to be arrested. Um, And so she lowered the temperature at that point. And then I think she kept these letters for the rest of her life, always worried that she might be arrested. And this would be kind of her ticket out of jail kind of thing, you know, to say, if you're really going to push this, I'm going to show that I had an affair with Warren Harding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's always Um, nice to have a get out of jail card. Yeah. Yeah. A (laughs) hundred. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but he, he eventually found out about it and told her to cool it and told, actually told, but the odd thing is I think her husband knew she was having an affair with Harding. I'm sure he did. Yeah. I wonder about the two, 15 years and all the details of it. Like how does he not know? And yet he and he and Jim Phillips and Warren Harding continued to be friendly. Uh, It's very, it's an odd thing to me, but he also, I think was, was kind of, telling his wife to knock it off because she really was very close to being arrested. Yeah. Uh, especially after this Baroness got arrested down in Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So th- this all kind of leads to a, a different angle. This, I feel like whenever I discuss, you know, presidents or politicians and sex scandals and, and any conversation of Harding leads to a conversation of presidents and sex scandals should we care about any of that? You know, there's a part of me that says, who cares what a politician does in the bedroom? It doesn't affect me. But there's also a part of me that knows an affair could lead to blackmail or favoritism, not to mention if you accidentally get entangled with an espionage agent. Yeah. So I'm curious, what's your take on this, on whether Americans should care about who their politicians are sleeping with? Yeah, I think it's, 
You know, it's a good and very complicated question because one thing we know for sure is we've had many presidents who've had affairs um, fam famously. John Kennedy is the is the best example of it. Franklin Roosevelt died when he died in Warm Springs, Georgia, mm -hmm. um, right at, at the end of the first, uh, Second World War. Uh, a woman named Lucy Rutherford was there with him, who was a, a person he was having a long time affair with. Mm -hmm. um, Woodrow Wilson had an affair with a woman that he met in Bermuda when in, when he was went there to recover from one of his early strokes um, before he was long before he was president, and he had kind of a, an affair with her. So I think I think in part um, this high libido goes with um, goes with politicians. I think it kind of you know these are people who have big egos and they. They want to be they want to be loved and they're doing it because they, you know, want to be recognized. And I think part of that, you know, Henry Kissinger always talked about how, um, you know, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac, as he put it <laughs> yeah. uh, during his Nixon years. And so I think I think it's going to go with the territory. My guess is that a lot of politicians and a lot of people who went to, you know, Washington in those days and earlier even had, you know, regular affairs. I just think it was a commonplace thing. And I think when somebody becomes president, we know more about it because they became president. So that's one way to look at it, that yeah. I think it is commonplace. The other way to look at it is, though, that, you know, presidents are supposed to represent, you know, the highest morality in the country. And mm -hmm. um, it, it is not something that it, that goes with the territory of being president. It's kind of, you know, it, it, it is a problem. And um, as you've said, and in Harding's case, it really becomes highlighted. It is really dangerous uh, when you've got, when you're in love with someone who then starts to blackmail you when you're a politician, especially a president yeah. of the United States. And so, you know, there, there were, there's been stuff written about JFK having an um, an affair with a woman who was a mob uh, mistress too, you know. Wow, um, I haven't gotten to that yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I think it's fairly convincing that that did happen. But you know, this is just these things get really um, affairs like that when you're in political life can get out of hand very quickly and cause all sorts of problems um, and so forth. So it, it's not something I think is to Harding's credit, except this was really a love affair that lasted. For a long, long time, it wasn't yeah. just because he was Bill Clinton in the White House with you know Monica Lewinsky. It was very different. He had that kind of an affair with a woman who got pregnant. Actually, her name was Nan Britton. Um, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, we talked about Nan Britton in the past episode. Yeah, yeah. So, but that that happened exactly at the time when he voted for war, and mm. the relationship really chilled with Kerry because of that. Yeah. And so he uh, he ended up. You know, this young woman really did chase him around, but she was very young. He had no business having an yeah. affair with her. He did. She had a baby, and then he really didn't support that baby. And only recently we found out through DNA that, in fact, she she, um, she did have an affair. The daughter was his. Yeah. And there, there's now a family out there, actually in your part of the country. and out, out in, Yes, uh, around Portland. Yeah, exactly. Um, who, you know, are descendants of his, the only descendants of his. Yeah, it's kind of wild how much <laughs> news there's been about Harding in the past decade. You don't expect your presence from 100 years ago to suddenly <laughs> have all these things coming up like that. Yeah, well, um, my my book kind of pushed it because yeah. when that my book came out, one of the Harding 
relatives contacted me and said, I'm going to start doing DNA. We're going to find out. Oh, nice. So, so yeah. it was really my book that started that journey. That's awesome. To, to finding out about it. And the guy who, who did it, a guy named Peter Harding, um, is a story unto himself. He lives in yeah. Big, Big Sur, but really interesting guy. Um, cool. So that's what started that journey. I also just want to say to your, to your first point earlier about politicians tend to have a lot of fears. Definitely. I've read a lot of history and there came a moment where I was like, everybody's sleeping with everyone in history. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. man, these yeah. people are wild. Yeah. It's, it's human nature and politicians are, you know, humans on steroids in a lot of ways. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it really, it, I, I, I really firmly believe it kind of goes with the territory. Um, now, I, I'd love to talk about the rest of Harding's presidency with you, too. And in, in our emails setting up this interview, you, you made the good point that Harding, he certainly inherited a really difficult situation when he became president. Uh, can you please paint the picture a bit? In, in what ways was the country in dire straits in 1920? Yeah, well, it, I, as I wrote to you, and I've written a lot in, um, in various publications, he is a very misunderstood president and he's he's vastly underestimated. He was a really good president because what happened is at the end of the First World War, um, two things really uh, coincided. One was that Woodrow Wilson had had a stroke in September of 1919. Yeah. So for the last year and a half of his second term, the United States was literally leaderless. He was initially physically unable and then later emotionally unable to uh, to govern. And so that's going on. And at the same time, the economy is going crazy because at the end of the First World War, you have this huge inflation that starts up because there's so much war spending. And then all of a sudden, when that spigot is cut off, there's this great deflation and a great worry about a huge, a huge depression and a yeah. great worry about that. Yeah. Uh, so both those things are are going on while the world is going to try to recover from this devastating war that took you know tens of millions of lives in a pandemic, the worst yeah. in history, yeah. that took hundreds of millions of lives. So it was the most crisis of crisis stages. And he came into the presidency with one goal, and that was to stabilize things. And he did so by doing things like cutting taxes, but at the same time, he also cut the, you know, the federal spending tremendously. Mm -hmm. Um, and that leveled things off in the economy. Um, and he, the, the people who write about this say it was like an e economic miracle that he saved the United States and saving the United States was not unimportant then because the United States was the only stable government in the Western world at that point. <laughs> and there was tremendous, um, uh, tremendous pressure on the side of socialists and communists. Yep. Because of the Bolshevik Revolution mm -hmm. and anarchists that were that were also at large, um, and so he's got that going on. He's got to work through all that. There are great race riots that are going on mm -hmm. because African Americans had gone to Europe and fought for the U.S. and came back. And Tulsa happened two months after he was yeah. uh, ina inaugurated. Yeah. And so he did. He he managed to work through all of that stuff and normalize things in a way that created what we call the roaring 20s mm -hmm. um, rather than, you know, a huge depression that was right around the corner. And if you think about it in Germany, you know, they went into hyperinflation after mm -hmm. the war. 
because they were saddled with all this debt from the stupid treaty that Wilson had negotiated and helped negotiate. Germany couldn't pay for it, so they they start printing money to try and pay for it, and they ultimately defaulted anyway. That gives rise to Hitler. I mean, this is the kind of thing. Inflation is a really dangerous thing. Yeah, um, it's a trigger for so many things. But you know, you just have to look at Harding and say what he did was nothing short of miraculous, and he he deserves to be seen as one of our great presidents. What did the nation think it was getting when it elected Harding? This is one thing I, I'm I'm never quite clear on. Like, did they think they were getting a progressive, a conservative, a moderate? Because, you know, the Republican Party, like, didn't necessarily mean conservative back then. You, you had just had, you know, Taft and, and TR, who were relatively progressive, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, I mean, they thought what they were getting was a common sense Ohioan. And that, what, <laughs> yeah. what, what that meant is somebody who is fiscally conservative, but still has a heart, you know, and cares. And uh, Harding is a good example of that. He, you know, he didn't want us to get involved, for example, in the the League of Nations, but he also didn't want us to walk away from the world. You know, he did a lot of things to help support the world at that time. He was in favor of, for example, an international court. Um, And so he was a, he was, when I say a common sense Ohioan, he was a middle of the road type of guy. Mm -hmm. And he, um, you know, he had instincts that were humanitarian in addition to being fiscally conservative. And best example of that is uh, Eugene Debs, who is the yeah. great socialist, yeah. had been put in jail because he gave a speech during the war that was against the war. Now that's, that is free, the core of free speech, the core yeah. of free speech. Absolutely. And under the Sedition Act that Wilson had passed, he was arrested and put away for 10 years. Now, this guy had run for president five times as the socialist. He was a big deal. He was very important. He was wasting away in a, Atlanta prison. And Harding put together a series of moves they needed to do to eventually commute his sentence right at Christmas in his first year in the White House. Hugely symbolic thing to do um, at that time when so many people, you know, uh, partisan hated, you know, socialists. But he let him out and he had him come to the White House and meet with him uh, on his way back to back home. These are the kind of healing things and the kind of humanitarian things that yeah. he was capable of doing that um, are the other side of being just this, you know, staunch conservative and, um, you know, wanting to be fiscally responsible. But he also had a humanitarian side that was quite good. Yeah. Um, we are recording this interview on October 21st, uh, 2022. It's the 101st anniversary of Harding traveling to Alabama and becoming the first president to give a speech against lynching in the South. Right. This is one of those areas where Harding definitely talked the talk, but nothing ended up getting done. You know, he ran into obstruction in the Senate. There's still no law, federal law against lynching. Uh, something that happens to a lot of presidents. You, you, you got an idea, you really want it. It's a good thing, but you, you can't get it done. I'm curious, how much credit do you think presidents should get for good intentions that fail to become legislation or policy? Yeah, well, Birmingham is his shining moment, actually. Um, yeah. it, and it was on this date. Uh, and what's important about that speech is that he went, he was one of the first presidents going to the deep South after the civil war, he went down there and this was in part in response to Tulsa and all the race rioting Mm. that was going on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and he went down there and he said, look, um, 
I'm for political equality. Blacks should have rights the same as whites, and they should be able to vote just as whites are able to vote. He says, don't misunderstand me. I'm not for social equality. That works itself out. Um, But I am for political uh, equality. That was an extremely radical position for whether you're a Democrat or a Republican to go in the South and say something like that. The people in Birmingham booed him, the whites, the blacks cheered him. They were separated by a, a chain link fence. But it was very courageous speech, and it really was his idea, m- more so than the lynching issue, um, which he did try to get an anti-lynching law passed right when he became president. Here, what he was trying to do was to say, blacks need to have political equality. And remember, this they are in the they are in the height of Jim Crow and uh, repressing the black vote. Yeah, you got so, a resurgent KKK these years, you know. Oh, yeah, right. So this. And this is where presidential leadership counts for so much. Um, you, you have to take these positions and you have to have that courage to take these positions. And so in many ways, that set a tone uh, for, for later years and later, later things that happened. And yeah, he was in a time when, um, you know, the South was being brutally run by Democrats. And what he was trying to do was to get more Republicans, you know, in the South and get more, um, get more voting. But, but really it was just a, a statement of political equality that was the equivalent of a, of a Lincoln, you know, emancipation proclamation. It was really a strong statement and um, he, he deserves all the credit in the world for giving that statement. And, and what about this, the second part of this, though? Like, absolutely great statement, all the right intentions, but nothing actually happens. You know, no law actually changes. How much credit do you think presidents should get for that? Do you, do you think that you, you get full credit for wanting something that doesn't happen? Is there a sliding scale or or is it, you know, you didn't get it done? Yeah. So we're not counting this when we grade, like, how great a president you are. Yeah. Well, I think... If you think about what the, what he was addressing, um, yeah. the, the, he was trying to to change the South, and the South was not Republican. You know that wasn't his party. It was yeah. it was it was all Democrats. And yeah. so once you get to Franklin Roosevelt, you're going to have this steady Democratic governing um, from FDR through Truman, JFK, Johnson, and that's when they start changing with yeah. the Civil Rights Act in 1964. He, you know, Harding can be seen at the front of that parade, um, but it takes it takes the Democrats in the South to finally say they're going to stop acting the way they're acting through yeah. Johnson. And you saw what happened when when that happened. Um, Johnson, you know, said, "I'm losing the, you know, we've lost the South now for forever, essentially." And it has turned totally Republican from totally Democrat. Yeah, but. You know, so Harding was really kind of at the beginning of that change that was going to happen. But during the interim, before LBJ did the 64 Civil Rights Act, you know, the Democrats, including FDR and JFK, were beholden to Southern Democrats to get their office. So you can't blame the Republicans or Harding for that that issue. Yeah. 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 So I think I think the answer is that sometimes change like that takes a long time, but but you really have to start in some way and, and start, you know, putting your flag down. 
Cool. So, so you've argued that you know Harding should be considered better than he's considered. He's, he's generally judged very poorly, but you think he deserves a better shake. I'm curious, where do you think he belongs? You know, there's there's 46 presidents. Where in that list do you think should be Harding's home? Yeah, I think he's in the top quartile. Um, I, I, you know, he's always seen as like dead last. And you know, once I really started looking at his record and what he did, and just this. This idea that you're a president who saves not just this country, but in a sense, helps save the world right after the Second World War from, you know, devolving into total chaos, you know, with all, with the with the, uh, uh, you know, the influenza that was going around and killing people and everything else that was going on. It was a very dangerous, chaotic time. And so I think the fact that he overcame that puts him in a league with some of our best presidents. Um and getting our economy back back going in the right direction too. Um, so I, I think he's on the top quartile. Um, you could argue he's in the top 15. Cool. Uh, last question. This is a question I'd love to ask everybody. What lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from Harding? I think the most important lesson from him is to be true to yourself. He was, uh, he was a guy who believed in his convictions. And um, he listened to other people. He was willing to compromise. He was not overly political, but at the end of the day, he was himself. And he believed that his values and who he was and what he believed after, you know, a a career in politics was something that he was going to follow. And um, so I think his his just his natural ability, he was very well liked when he was in office. He just was a good communicator. He was good at making people feel good about themselves. And so I think that that just kind of that quality is the quality that I see from him. If you'd like to hear more from Jim, please check out The Harding Affair, Love and Espionage During the Great War. You can also find him at Twitter, at Jim Robinalt, and you can give him a visit at muckrack.com slash James dash Robinalt. You can check out his literature. Thank you for your time, Jim. Okay, Kenny, nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, and write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, I'll be trying something new. A Thanksgiving, Friendsgiving, presidential podcast spectacular with my friends Howard Dory of Plotting Through the Presidents, Alicia of Civics and Coffee, and Jerry Landry of Presidencies of the United States. It'll be a roundtable discussion that's pretty fun. And then, in early December, we'll get to Calvin Coolidge, who might just be the father of modern Republican conservatism. That's coming up on Abridged Presidential Histories.